welcome to the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. My name is Ethan Jago, your host, and I am so excited for you to be joining me today uh, as we are having a special guest join us today, Dr. Brian Wright, and we're going to be looking at and discussing communal reading. Um, this is an exciting topic on what communal reading is, uh, kind of what happened in the first century, and how did the church uh, practice worship uh, in the reading of scripture communally. So this is a podcast I recorded uh, a few months ago, and I'm just now getting around to working with it, tweaking it and everything else. Uh, so I hope you will enjoy, um, after this brief intro, uh, the podcast in which I interview Brian, and uh, you are in for a treat. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you guys enjoy today. Before you're in for a treat, Brian is a scholar uh, and an author, and also recently started as a church planter uh, in Texas. I met Brian when he was living here in Pensacola, and we connected, and he invited me to the Evangelical Theological Society last year. Now, if you haven't heard about ETS or you're not sure about it, one, I would say, Google it, go to etsjets.org. Now, what the ETS is, is it's the society... Uh, it's the Evangelical Theological Society, and it's a professional academic society of biblical and theological scholars, pastors, and students. And the purpose of this is where individuals are having the ability to present papers, book chapters, and it gets peer-reviewed from other scholars to assess to see if it's credible, if it's is actually adding or aiding in the, to the theological or philosophical understanding of best practices. So I had the opportunity to go this past year with him. And it was such an eye-opening, uh, incredible encouragement and growth uh, in my life. It was in Fort Worth, Texas, and it was awesome. So as we start, as we, before we get into this communal reading, I just want to say uh, you guys are in for a special treat. Communal reading is talking about what happened in the first century in which when the scribes or Paul or whomever was writing his epistles, getting them put out in production and dissemination around the church in the first century, communal reading was a very important part of the early church. Uh, and not just the early church, but the Greco-Roman society in the first century. So I hope you guys enjoy this. We're going to have more guests on the podcast in the future. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's podcast. All right. So, hey, everybody, we are uh, live right now with uh, a good friend of mine, Brian uh, Wright. And Brian, would you just briefly introduce yourself to our listeners uh, so that way they kind of know who you are? Uh, just give a real brief uh, summary of, uh, you know, kind of your history and everything. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'll do it in, in uh, starting with what's, you know, uh, most practical of this podcast. And just again, thank you for having me on today. So uh, I'm married to Daniela and we have five kids. So I'll start off just personally uh, saying I'm a father of five. And so stay busy with that. Um, but as far as just where, you know, kind of coming onto this podcast, I did my um, master's work, my THM at Dallas Theological Seminary, and then went on and did my PhD studies in New Testament at Ridley College, which is in Melbourne, Australia, under Michael Bird. And the main topic of my thesis was communal reading in the first century. And so um, once I finished my dissertation work and research, I you know, went on to publish it with Fortress Press, a book called Communal Reading in the Time of Jesus, and was just really looking at um, you know, book culture in the first century. So what, what did ancient book culture look like? Who was reading what and where and how? 
uh, in the first century. And so that was kind of the topic that I had chosen. And, and since then it's just been, you know, uh, delightful to, um, you know, see how God's used it to, uh, you know, bless the Academy as well as the church. Now with this too, Brian, you're telling me a story because me and uh, Brian uh, were just together recently uh, at the Evangelical Theological Society. You have actually, because uh, we've been studying uh, the formation of the New Testament and manuscripts. Can you tell us that story, the one that you told me where you're over there documenting? Uh, I just, I find that as just such an awesome story. Yeah. So actually prior to my PhD studies, uh, I did go around and travel uh, um, photographing ancient manuscripts with an organization called uh, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Uh, the founder is Daniel Wallace, uh, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, where we met. And so, yeah, I just started uh, my first trip ever with him was to Albania. And then it just grew from there. I started going on a number of trips internationally and even some domestic. Uh, There's a large papyrology department at, uh, up in Michigan at Michigan University. Um, there's also a uh, Van Campen had a collection down in the Holy Land in Orlando. So there was a couple of domestic flights, but most of our, our trips, but most of most of the manuscript excursions were uh, international. So we'd go over there. And the whole purpose of the organization is to photograph manuscripts, to be able to get them, one, to preserve them, but two, to get them in the hands of scholars that they're able to now decipher them and work on them and collate them and, and just do different things to know what we have. So there's a lot of manuscripts out there, but they're not being preserved, nor are they being studied because there's limited access to them. Mm. So, so what was uh, what what was one of the earliest manuscripts you've been able to be in the presence of? Yeah, so uh, Codex Barentinus, and so well, actually, one of the, actually I should say that was one that we photographed. But as far as what being, having access to the uh, P forty six, the earliest letter of Paul. So I've seen um, up in uh, Michigan, they've got a. Um, uh, They've got that manuscript. They've got a number of other early Shepherd of Hermas, some other, um, you know, Plato and Aristotle. So I've seen some very early uh, manuscripts of both the New Testament, other ancient sources, even Quranic manuscripts. And so just all over the world, you see different manuscripts. So some of them are dating very early. Um, the, the first one that I photographed, um, which is different than just you know, going into an archive and seeing it kind of like if you were to go into a museum and you could say, I saw this versus handling it and photographing it and discerning it. So there's a difference, but, um, was this one coat, uh, purple codex that was dyed in, uh, purple, the vellum, this animal skin was dyed in purple. Only six are known to exist. And Hitler was trying to get all six of them. And so they tracked that this uh, manuscript he never found, and it was buried underneath a house uh, just north of Tirana, Albania. And so they discovered it, they threw it in the National Archive, and although we've known it was there, nobody was ever able to photograph it or see it. So it's an Alexandrian manuscript, and we were excited to go over there and photograph it. That's the story I was thinking of, that when you had told me <laughs> that, I'm like, dude, that is the coolest thing ever. That is just, yeah, <laughs> it's awesome just being able to man, see those. And I've actually shown our, uh, our crossroads group, uh, one of the 10th century manuscripts from the center for new Testament study, uh, manuscripts. And oh, I showed them cool. one of, one of Matthew's, uh, pages from, uh, papyri there is super cool, but, um, I just wanted to kind of lay that groundwork for everybody so that, uh, I want everyone to realize like, Brian is the, uh, is the guy who has been there, done that, and is continuing to be an expert in the field um, of New Testament textual criticism and uh, being within that field. Uh, I love that his focus is what we're going to be discussing today is communal reading 
Um, and so, Brian, can you give us a, uh, before we get into communal reading, can you give us a brief overview of, let's just use the Apostle Paul, for instance, when Paul was writing his letters, what would that process, uh, and I know this is a deep question, but as wave tops as you can be, what would that process look like upon him penning it and then to the distribution? Yeah, so two things real quick before specifically answering that question. One thing is I just want to let your listeners know not to feel overwhelmed or even shocked by some of the things you hear, because um, about a month prior to publishing my book, uh, one well-known seminary contacted me and said, why don't you come up with a little quiz, an ancient book culture quiz, and let's see if people will take it and and how they score. And so it was actually New Orleans uh, Baptist uh, Seminary. So I did this uh, 15 or 20 question quiz. We posted online. And after over a thousand pastors and scholars and students uh, took the quiz, the highest score was in the 70s. And so (laughs) a lot of this is not just well-known information out there. And so there was an aspect of it being groundbreaking, but not just from my perspective, but just there's a lot that's gone on archaeologically and everything else in the last 10, 20, 30 years. And so it takes a while to kind of trickle down to where it kind of becomes a well-known aspect of backgrounds and things. And so just to say that up front to your listener, um, listeners of just, again, some of these things will be new to you, but don't think it's, it's because you're just out of the know. It's just, it's new to a lot of people. And so with that being said, uh, people's, a lot of times I need to kind of paint a picture and then answer the question just so people can kind of have an idea of what was going on in the first century. Cause some of it will sound like, wow, I, I never realized that, or I didn't know that. And one of it is in the first century, there really was just this public reading mania going on. And so there are even accounts of teachers complaining about students trying to fast track or bypass their education because they just wanted to participate in it. So think of today, we'd say somebody just wants their video to go viral. Well, that was like back then they wanted to participate and everyone was reading something to someone somewhere and they wanted to participate and gather crowds and get people to listen to them read. And so there'd be comedians that would talk about, I can't even go to the bathroom without hearing somebody reading, uh, uh, you know, in a room next to me. Uh, There are accounts of women faking going into labor because they just wanted to get out of a bad communal reading event. And so there was times when when Nero, the emperor, was trying to was doing these public readings and, and he wasn't the greatest. And so there is so much going on. So it really was some viral phenomenon going on that. Uh, There were poetry contests. There were um, all sorts of different literary contests going on. So it really was think of think of in our culture, like film watching or sports entertainment. It really was that back then, this idea of communal reading. And so I say that to say, you know, if today somebody misquoted a movie line, everyone say, no, 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 that's not what it said. Or if ever if somebody said uh, quoted a wrong sports score, who won this or an athlete? we would immediately know that something was wrong there. No, that wasn't right. Or no, that's right. That's what we all heard or watched or saw. So again, transition that back to the first century in literature. So to answer your question with that kind of a picture in a a general way, um, broad strokes picture, when Paul, somebody like Paul would write a letter, um, one, if they wrote it themselves, they could. Oftentimes, as you even read in the New Testament, Paul or others would use what's called the technical term is an amanuensis, kind of like a scribe. to to speak to, and they would write it down. That happened as well. So there's different ways that somebody would either dictate, write it themselves, um, or even hear something read and then write it down. So those are kind of the ways that that, um, if somebody wanted to communicate via, uh, you know, uh, written media. So let's say Paul was writing something down or using amanuensis to write it down. And then after he would take that, 
And he would give it to either an envoy or somebody, a letter carrier to go and take it to a community. So this letter carrier would be entrusted to go take it, you know, up to Colossae, take it over to uh, Rome or wherever the letter was going. Now, um, once that letter carrier would get there, again, there are examples of the letter carrier reading it. There are examples of handing it off and the people read it. There are examples of one person reading it. There are examples of passing it around. So it, there's not just one answer or one size fits all. It really just depends on the context and what was what was going on. Now, with that, too, would it be also common practice that uh, that envoy would bring it up to, let's just say, the church in Colossae, and then other scribes would then copy that to be able to distribute it out so that there would be multiple copies as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one reason that uh, some scholars give for why we don't have any of the originals is because they were so worn out. I mean, they would have been copied and copied and copied and copied. They would have been used. And so over time, it's they were making and generating copies after copies. And so, yes, certain letters that were called circular letters, like Ephesians, uh, is is known as probably a, a circular letter that it wasn't just meant to be read in this place at this time. But really, once you've read it, it, it needs to go to the other churches. So and we specifically have that stated in the book of Colossians. And so uh, I think it's 416 says talks about, hey, after you read this, well, then you know, uh, give it to the Laodiceans and then you should read theirs as well. So that we have even the statements in the new Testament that this practice went on. And what would happen too? then, uh, just, I, I think this is just going to help frame uh, a lot of help for what we were going through Sunday mornings at, uh, crossroads is when they would send these parchments or they would send these papyri to not just Ephesus, but then someone could also request them. And we have historical evidence to suggest that, uh, these are actually being disseminated and where someone's like, hey, can you send me this one? And would that also happen with the New Testament epistles and stuff like that as well? No, absolutely. And so we see, I mean, in one sense, as, as you mentioned, the evidence, the evidence is that happened because we have thousands of manuscripts. And so if that wasn't taking place, we wouldn't have thousands of manuscripts. So in one sense, even in apologetics, it's something happened in the first century to have produced so much literature as if it's never been seen before in history. So there was something happened and an explosion of literature happened. So what, however you want to answer that, and I know how we would answer that as Christians, right? Something really did happen and there was a man, Jesus, and he died and rose again. So, but, but in the first century, something so significant happened that there was this explosion of literature in the sense of you have, we have now thousands of manuscripts referring back to this event and it from all over the Roman empire, all over Palestine, all of, so they were sharing, sending, and, and we even have other documents that weren't. And so, you know, um, which again would be another topic at another time, but so you have a lot of things, but to place it in its context, you have pagans were writing then, uh, Jews were still writing then Greco-Roman authors were writing then. So it wasn't just a Christian thing. It was, there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, people in commu reading communities, maybe we can call them that were going on of just different types of things. People were reading Homer. And so, Hey, let, you know, some people are quoting different authors and things. But when I say there was an explosion, again, if you look at the, the archeological evidence, we have so much more evidence for the new Testament than we do any other ancient document. Wow. So continuing on the thought process then into the communal reading aspect. So the, the letter would be, have been given to the envoy, would have been received by the church. And then what would that have looked like in which let's just say the church in Ephesus received that letter, would they call everyone together or is it kind of understood, Hey, we just received this. 
let's everyone that's a believer come together. How would that work? Like, how did that process work? Yeah. And again, there'd be different venues. I mean, different settings, different things there. Cause you know, were they in a synagogue? Were they in a house church? Were they in a, so, uh, private homes? Were they in a marketplace? So there would have been different uses for a text that would have been received or a letter, but overall, generally speaking, it would have been read to all those meeting in Colossae, all those, the church in Corinth. And so they would read it and then they would certainly circulate it and let others read it, but it would have been somebody would have read it to the church uh, congregationally, almost like you, you see in the book of Acts of they've had Moses read in all the churches every Sabbath. Well, just like they would read Moses every Sabbath in the synagogues, they would now be reading the letters of Paul together as they would meet. So it went beyond then just the Old Testament writings to now the letters of Paul and others were being were being seen on the same level and even being used in that way. So you really see the Jewish practice of readings in synagogues being taken over by Christians, but but in in similar, but in, even in distinct ways of not just the Old Testament, or they would have said to Tanakh scriptures, but uh, now letters of Paul. So now they're being read in their corporate gatherings. So uh, to answer your question is, if they were meeting on a Sunday on the Lord's Day and they were all gathered together, we just got a letter from Paul. And so they would read that letter. Um, now with that too, um, depending on the venue and stuff, I'm not sure if your history had, uh, I, I'm about halfway through your book right now. I was okay. hoping to finish it before. Uh, <laughs> did did your research find too that families did this together, um, that it yeah. wasn't just for the adults only, but they allowed and incorporated um, the whole family unit? Absolutely. And to be honest with you, as a father of five, one of my favorite accounts in the entire book is actually of a, um, a Jewish man. And I, I don't know if I can quickly turn to it that um, a father had died and I think he had seven kids and the mother's little kind of tributary to the father and how he would read scripture, sing scripture, uh, um, share the stories. Everything was about this communal reading aspect with his family in a Jewish context in the first century. So it's just powerful to see. And then you see those in others. So that, that one just, uh, again, popped in my mind first because that, that really impacted me of, and you see different words that he would read aloud the stories of the, you know, the scriptures. And so he would um, sing different passages of scriptures, but there would be this aspect of the family was just getting immersed, immersed in God's word and he was doing it in the family. And so, yes, I would say absolutely see it in families. So I'm imagining the setting then would be kind of chaotic, potentially loud. Uh, so <laughs> the who would be the typical person to have been the orator to have done the reading? Would it have been a leader of the church or what would that have been? Yeah. So a couple of answers there. So one, it, it could have been anyone who was literate. There wasn't anything stated or said it can't be these or it could be these. Now, you, you do have some people in the some of the elite authors that would say it should only be this or this is how you ought to read. And certainly any teacher would know you set this as the standard, as the ideal, but not everybody's there. So there's even accounts in my book that I talk about. Hey, wait, there's a foreigner with an accent. And he's coming in and reading this. Well, he's still read, but it just it, they didn't understand it as well where they were. Um, but there was there there could be we have examples of children reading. We have examples of women reading, of males reading, of leaders reading. So it's again, it's not a one size fits all. But I think a typically if a letter would have come to a church and the church is gathering, they probably would have had an elder or somebody like that read it, not because they're the only ones that should have 
or could have, but just they might have been the one that the community identified as being the one to read or, or you know, selected. Even Jesus going to the synagogue, it was his turn. He came up and he read in the synagogue in Luke chapter four. And so he opened up the scroll, he read. So again, there's different people in different ways that would read and the readings would have been different lengths. So I often get asked the question, how long would it have gone? Well, it wasn't like our services where, hey, you're 45 minutes into an hour or it was this, it was that. It could have been longer. It could have been shorter. It could have been more expounding, explaining, question asking. And so there was a number of things that went on. It wasn't just we come, we listen to something read and we leave. And that's where maybe something that I probably should have said even earlier than now, because some of your listeners might hear the word communal or when they read in passages like First Timothy 4.13, that says, give attention to the public reading of scripture. What that word does not mean is public versus private. What the word means is communal versus individualistic. And that's a huge difference. So when somebody hears, oh, public reading, well, I get that when I go to church or yeah. public reading. Oh, that's when I go outside my home or I go into the marketplace or I, I get people together to come to the square to hear scripture read. No, it's talking about us being in com community and it being read communally with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not individualistically. So give attention to the communal reading because we're a community. We are under the word, formed, formed by the word. And so there's a number of aspects there that are sometimes. So it's not just, you know, well, I'll just pop my Bible uh, into my CD player, my car, or on my MP3 player, or on my phone, or here's my, here's my Bible reading app. Again, don't mishear me. Everyone should be listening to their Bible, and the more Bible intake, the better. But that's not what that verse is saying. It's not just listen to it. It's not just um, you need to go somewhere. Hey, if we can just get the Bible people to be listening to it, that the magic happens there. It's more of you being in community and reading it with other people. I love that. Um, and we're going to move into that in a little bit. But before we get into the practical play out of that, I had yeah. uh, another question um, that we you've kind of briefly touched on this is. Uh, the strength of the communal reading, too, within the first century, also from an apologetical standpoint, um, can you briefly talk about how would that have helped and aided to the attestation of what was being read at that time? Because when we see the circulation, uh, and I, I don't think we've answered this, but from the time in which Paul would pen something to distribution, there wouldn't be a significant gap between that, correct? It would be immediately sent out? Correct. And the other thing to factor in, so yes, to your question, it would have been immediately sent out. And as long as it took the envoy or the letter carrier to get to wherever they were going, and there, that was it. I mean, there wasn't a, let, let's put this in an archive for 10 years and then and then reveal it, you know, or, <laughs> hey, let's send it to the scriptorium, have them copy 100 copies, then we'll get the word out. It would have been, I wrote a letter. It's just like you put a letter in the mail, as long as the Postal Service takes to get there, and they got there. And so, and just so people know, which again would be an area, and maybe I'm talking about things that I learned and didn't know, and maybe some of your listeners already know these things, but there was even a postal service. There was even news bulletins and newspapers, I'll call them, going out uh, before, during, and after the time of Jesus. So don't think that it was so backwaters, unconnected, unnetworked areas. It was actually a very vibrant community of, of transportation of ideas, um, there's even uh, people that would be exiled to places, but they'd still have access to get to news bulletins and literature like Ovid when he was exiled in the Black Sea. Or you have armies talk about how the, that, that, that their literature, like uh, Marshall and Livy and others would talk about their literature getting out even to the armies in the far off provinces. So things got to where they were going. 
and distribution was broad and wide. And uh, I love that because uh, I saw, I did read that chapter in your book. I was able to get through that. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, but from the, uh, let's address real quickly, the apologetic issue. Yeah. Um, so when it's being read communally, uh, explain how that can help with apologetics uh, and even attesting to the historicity of that. That's right. So a number of ways, but all this too. One of them is certainly going to tie into reliability, which I'll mention in a second. And the second one is going to tie into, you know, um, I'll give an example. Um, Augustine wrote a letter to Jerome saying, okay, you just came out with this new translation, the Latin Vulgate. And while we were reading in Jonah chapter four, you had a different word there that caused an uproar in my congregation. And so you just think of, they have been listening to stories like Jonah for however long they've been listening to it with this translation. We've all memorized our certain verses with, wait, that's not how it goes because you memorize it a certain way. Well, think of a reading culture that you've listened to something so often that when a word is misplaced or a word is different, people are going to stand up and say, whoa, 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 that's not it. So when Jerome's Latin Vulgate translation came out, there was an uproar in Augustine's congregation over one word in the book of Jonah. And so that those are the types of things that would be what's called quality controls. So there's a quality control to hearing a story. And that's where when I mentioned film watching and sports entertainment today, so your listeners can maybe connect of if somebody misquotes a movie line, you know that that's not what it was or reads a different story than the one you grew up hearing your whole life. And so if there's changes, somebody stands up and says something. Well, think of how much more in a sacred space. This wasn't just any old movie. This wasn't just any old uh, book. This, to the Christian communities, was God's word. God breathed his holy inspired inerrant scriptures. So I think there would even be a higher level of accountability or quality control in that. But as far as the reliability of the Bible, you know, um, one, one, of the, one of the things that when I talk about these quality controls, people talk about eyewitnesses. Well, that's a quality control. There were eyewitnesses during the time. There was writing. There was memor memorization. There was all these different quality controls. Well, how, where communi communal reading comes in is what happens in like Acts chapter uh, 18 when, you know, uh, Apollos is teaching and he gets a couple's feedback. And so there's, there's a quality control to even his teaching of whatever doctrines or things. Or when a command is written to a community, like in 2 Thessalonians, or when there's a noted concern from an apostle, or there's a warning to anyone who reads and hears what is written and changes any of it. So there's warnings, there's cursings, there's blessings, there's all of these things. There can be an endorsement from an apostle, a decree from a council, a scroll examined. So all of those things help us realize that actually that was a pretty strong, reliable tradition if there was multiple attestation, there were eyewitnesses, there was apostles, there was writing, there was memorization, there were there was a lot more going on than just somebody wrote a document, hopefully the people that copied it got it right. And so that's what you often hear. So I'd say, especially in texts that were copied more frequently, that were read more frequently communally, it necessarily leads to a greater stability of that tradition. And also too with that is, uh, the, the time in which from the, for instance, the resurrection of Christ, I mean, we're not talking that long ago in which people are just all dead and gone. We still have people that were definitely around at that time that could have been like, no, that's actually not how that went down. So that even from a 
you know, a skeptic standpoint, I mean, we, yeah. we, you know, we have Josephus, we have other individuals that kind of attest to that as well as like, no, this actually did happen. Yeah. Cause one thing that I've gotten a lot from individuals is, well, how do we know that the Bible, uh, it wasn't just made up by a bunch of guys and you just answered it perfectly. Of like, well, look at the quality control. I love how you said quality control It's a beautiful, yeah. uh, term to have with that. Um, it, it's just, yeah, just the community. Well, like you said, to even, even add on to a distinctive element, whereas, the New Testament versus, for example, the Gnostic literature, like the Nag Hammadi documents. So it it wasn't just a group of guys, which it was, as you stated, it was guys that would talk about each other. So Peter can talk about people that are twisting the things Paul's saying. Paul can talk about the things that Luke, I mean, so you have this, and then Tim, Timothy, so you have them talking about each other. So like you said, it's not just to get a conspiracy, you really have to have control over something. But the wild and free copying of everything, there was no control in that sense. There was a control of the tradition, but not a control that one person was controlling what was what was going on, if that makes sense. So whereas you get in the Gnostic literature, you have here, I, Thomas, tell you this. And so they're trying to gain instant credibility versus already having credibility because, you know, like they talk about even the Gospels. If I were to ask you who, according to the Gospel of Matthew, wrote Matthew, well, it doesn't say, right? Well, if you get a letter from your mom, she doesn't have to say, hi, I, your mom, am writing. Right? <laughs> so they would have known there would have been a, you know, a type of uh, familiarity. And then as that goes out as being known versus somebody trying to get instant credibility. Man, it's, it's funny. Uh, everything you've been saying goes into a lot of the research I've been doing with the effects of social media mm-hmm. and it sounds like communal reading was a social media of the first century. Absolutely. To go viral, to gain a following uh, and just all that landish things they would do. So let's take this into a modern day context. What can we as Christians today uh, learn from communal reading and how can we apply that uh, into our lives? Uh, Like, what does that look like? Uh, Help us out here. I want... I want some practicality, Brian. Absolutely. And, and, and if I were to say there's one thing I, in, in writing my book and after publishing it, I, I regret, and it was not adding a chapter or two to kind of the present day implications. And so um, thankfully, a number of outlets allowed me to write, spin off a few articles like Desiring God, Gospel Coalition. So your, your audience can Google those and, and look them up. So beyond the things that you can Google, um, I'd say <laughs> one of the things that I would highlight besides some of the apologetics and how that plays into it, it don't think so narrowly that the communal reading of scripture is only this, like it's only when I go to church and hear from the pastor reading a passage. Don't think it's only if I'm doing it publicly and it's not privately. Don't think it's so a lot of people and even pastors and scholars think it's a very narrow thing, but it's a much broader thing. It's think of you show up to a coffee shop and are reading literature with somebody that's communal reading. Uh, you, you, in a Bible study, there's an expounding and explaining of passages. That's communal reading. So think of you you catching a buddy or, or, or you getting one of your girlfriends to say, hey, let's go through this book together. That's communal reading. So mm-hmm. that's the type of community that's meant to be forming while we're sitting under the word together. Mm-hmm. And so it's really a, and, and I feel like it really calls us to a life of really even just humility and gratitude of it's not about me. It, it's, it's I value the input of others. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. We all have different gifts and talents, and we really need to be coming together and just God has placed these people in my life. I need to be getting sharpened and encouraged and strengthened by them. So it's really way, it's another way to kind of counter the argument of people sometimes say is, well, I don't really need to go to church. Well, 
communal reading is another aspect of, yeah, you really do. And, and here's, here's evidence, not to mention God said it, but evidence that would beg to differ. Mm. So there's things, I think the 21st century church can look at the first century church and really see and get inspired by and encouraged and instructed by them by saying, wow, they strengthen each other, enhance their walks, uh, uh, bless their communities by getting together, reading together, and being able to share ideas together in a, in a very humble and, and godly way. And it also is a safeguard to where when you get those knocks on the doors from you know the J-dubs, the Mormons, the others— you've really have an opportunity to be able to have answers. You know, we're mm. ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us. And so by doing these things, wait, that that's not how John 1, 1 goes. It doesn't say, and the word was a God, because you've been hearing it read. You've been, you've been in Bible studies. You've been, so there's a number of aspects that I think it's very intense and practical, but especially the communal community aspect of it. So uh, it really sounds like, uh, especially uh, this encourages me greatly within our own discipleship groups we have here is communal reading goes hand in hand with discipleship and is yes. a part of discipleship to strengthen discipleship groups. That's exact. So, so the article, maybe to encourage your readers, if, if they happen to Google anything on the topic is I wrote an article for uh, desiring God and it talked about how it aids and helps our evangelism as well as our discipleship. I mean, even think of Paul in first Corinthians uh, three talking about, your life is meant to be a communal letter that everyone's reading. Mm. So, I mean, even the imagery that, that it's giving of what discipleship really looks like, as they say, more is caught than taught. How's your life looking? Are people catching, are, are they reading a letter that they're catching some things, right? Or things that, so that's, that's first Corinthians. That's not me making up an analogy. That's an analogy given in the word of God. So there's things there for how we can protect the truth, aid discipleship, promote evangelism, even missions. Let me, let me mention one thing. A lot of times, and there's certain organizations that try to get people to, to um, you know, just have public reading events where, hey, let's gather a bunch of people and just have, maybe we'll hire somebody that's a professional reader, read a portion of scripture, which again, is fabulous, is awesome, is great. But they often will look at verses and try to say, this is why we're doing it, because Romans 10, 17 says faith comes, uh, comes by hearing. And I hear that all the time, but the point of that passage is not communal reading or public reading. The point is, how will they hear unless someone's preaching? How will they preach unless we're sent? The point is about sending people. The point is about us being in community and us having somebody else that's there to share the truth with us. And then you actually, Paul goes on to say in 1018, have they not heard? Meaning actually most of them have had somebody come into their life. They have heard, right? So there's a lot more in that context. But if you just strip a verse and just say, oh, faith comes by hearing, let's just get people to hear the word of God. Like, let's give them a uh, 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 here's the next app they need to listen to, but that's not it. There needs to be an explaining and expounding, uh, 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 of God's word. Kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch would say, how can I understand unless somebody explains? So again, it's a community that is, that is really helping, um, you know, missions, evangelism, discipleship, all ties into this, this topic. So, uh, Definitely along the lines, but you said something that is a, a huge issue that I've been seeing a lot with our young adults, Brian, is uh, a sense of loneliness uh, and lack of community is, is a huge issue that I, I see and hear all the time. Communal reading and incorporating this as we're gathering around scripture, we're gathering around a book, can really cut, cut that down, uh, can yeah. really just really help out. 
Yeah, no, that's been my hope and prayer. I mean, was for this to transition into things in the pews, that it's not just staying in some ivory tower. Okay, here's some new New Testament backgrounds information. That's never was my heart in even wanting to write this book. It was what now, how does this apply to us as believers? How does this apply us in community, us at our church? And so absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And it's really why, uh, if, if I were to share why I wrote uh, another book that talks about our rhythm between our day alone, that, that we are to have time alone with God and have, you know, meet with him uh, in our uh, typically called a quiet time. But our time as a community, those are meant to fit, feed each other. They're meant to work in tandem, going back and forth that, you know what, man, I had a hard day and it was just tough to be around everybody else and, and hear this, that, and the other. And it drives me back to my time alone with God. And then I get built up in my time alone with God and it helps me go back into my time together with others. In this rhythm of the Christian life that I talk about, that Bonhoeffer and others, I, I think, really just said, that's the pulsate, that's the excitement, that's where you, you know, you're really enjoying the Christian life and it's not some dry, boring, you know, uh, humdrum thing. It's live, it's active, it's vibrant, it's exciting, it's, it's, you know, so there's a lot there for sure. And you wrote a book on that as well. I don't know if you just said that or not. Yeah, yeah. I, please so, pitch uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I also have that one as well. It's yeah, that's a great so, read. So, so that was but, kind of to flesh out because communal reading was just about us together. But no, there is an individual aspect, but actually scripture spends more time on our communal aspect than on our individual one. So how many people then, because uh, I want to get even more, like define our terms, what would constitute communal reading? Like uh, how many people, what would that look like? Yeah, two or more. <laughs> so I'd almost go off the verse, you know, where two <laughs> or more are gathered, you're doing communal reading. If, if again, there's, there's a text and don't even think, and, and I would even broaden it, um, to not just, yes, there's the community reading of scripture, there are Bible studies, there's expounding, explaining uh, of God's word, uh, getting exposited from a pulpit on a Sunday, that all counts. But there's also an aspect of these were reading communities. And that's why you see, even again, mm. in the New Testament, like a book like Jude, how can he reference all these other books? How can Paul talk about all these other poets? How can they were reading, <laughs> right? So don't just read your Bible, read other literature, other works, get encouraged and sharpened and strengthened by them in ways that help encourage and bolster our faith. Pick up a C.S. Lewis, pick up a G.K. Chesterton, a, you know, Calvin, Luther, Augustine, you know, Edwards. So the, this is a, just a pure, rich stream that we can draw from that can, that can be a blessing as well. So it's not just scripture. It's actually be reading together. So with that too, would you think, uh, or this may be an opinionated question, I don't know, um, would we invite non-believers into our communal reading time, or is this something that is not being unequally yoked? This is time for Christians only. Yeah, so I would say there's time and place for both and, and so there are examples in the New Testament and in uh, even the first century that I would say there it's evangelistic. There can be an opportunity to say, Paul in the marketplace, uh, expounding the scripture so people would understand it. So he would invite any and every, you've been hearing me day in and day out, right? So it wasn't just you Christians have been hearing me day in that. He's pleading with the Jews. He's pleading with the, the, the pastors by. And so there's areas and places for that. Again, think of where different venues he would show up in apartments, in, in the marketplace, in the hall of Tyrannus. So again, Let's look at Book of Acts and see it's happening by creek beds. It's happening by out, out on fields. It's, it's happening in chariots. People are engaging literature 
and there's a time to engage them with that literature. And so I wouldn't say, actually, I would even encourage it not to only be in the confines of a church of church walls. It's out everywhere. It's in the marketplaces. It's in businesses. It's in boardrooms. It's in, it should be in schools and, and everywhere else for sure. Man. So last question here. How do you do this with your crazy family that I love so much with your two <laughs> German shepherds as well? That's you, right. That's you've right. got a full house, guys. We, <laughs> do we do sure this? do. We <laughs> sure do. So again, as with anything, if you don't make time for it, it won't happen. If you don't schedule it, it typically won't happen. It's, you know, we're, we're about to come out on a new year and a lot of times people are going to start a new reading plan. But if you don't have a plan, it's not going to happen. So it, just like working out, if you don't have a workout routine, it's not going to. So as with everything in life, it's schedule it, make time for it. And so to specifically give examples are, yes, we have family devotionals. And so again, the length of those vary. Sometimes they can go longer because the kids are very engaged. It happened to be that night, but then there's others where it's a little bit tougher on the attention span, but there's reading with them at night before they go build it into a routine, build it into a, a, mm. a, a, a rhythm in your life um, that that's already there and almost expected. And so we do it with our family. I do it with friends, people that I disciple, mentor. We read, you know, actually uh, right now here on my desk, uh, actually I moved it right over here. I'm going through mortification of sin with with uh, a, a couple of guys in my church. We're reading literature, we're expounding, explaining, discussing, and it's really just an unpacking of Romans 8, 13. So we're expounding scripture. We're talking about how to live this out. How do we mortify sin, for example? And so do it with friends, do it with, with others, go through a book this next year, pick a devotional, pick a, uh, pick, pick one of these classics, uh, to go through. And then at, at a church, I'd say it's happening on Sundays. So we have times, we have a reading before the sermon, and we'll typically have a benediction that has a reading, uh, afterwards. Again, not, that's one way we do it. Not every church has to do it that way, but there's just ways to incorporate this we're getting immersed in scripture and we're really getting to know God's word, God's people. We're forming community. I'm getting closer with the people in my life. They're getting closer with me and we're just doing life together. Man, I love that. Um, so I have just, I know I said that was the last question, but as you're, <laughs> as you're saying, um, I know uh, def, someone in our group asked me this and I said that I would ask you, and I forgot to tell you this this morning when I talked to you, because Brian had asked me, is there any Q&A? And I said, well, we're not doing this live, but I forgot that there, there is one Q&A and it's kind okay. of, it's off subject from communal reading okay. and it deals more with uh, New Testament. So since we have all the different translations, can you explain the inspired word of God without us having the originals. So is it, the, it's not the word for word. It's the, it's the central message. How would you explain the understanding of the inspired word of God in the Bible with that? So does, that say, make, does that question make sense? I think so. Let me, let me attempt uh, maybe two or three things uh, that at least initially popped in my mind. I would say for anybody that's maybe discouraged or disheartened or, or maybe just still skeptical and that's okay. That's a, that's a place to be and, and on your journey of the Bible, I'd say it's not that we only have 90% or 95% of the Bible, so we really don't know what it is. Uh, the, the thing in textual criticism is we have 110% of the Bible. What, what I mean by that is we have all these different manuscripts, and yes, they say different things. The original's in there somewhere. It's either this, this, or neither in most cases. And so as I'm looking at verses, I'm saying, okay, fair enough. Does it say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? Well, I need to make a decision. It says one of the two but it's either this or this. So do I have the inspired word of God? Yes, it's one of these two, 
even though on every scenario, I don't know exactly which one it is. So I do have to use a sermon. I have to read books. I have to go look at manuscripts. But, but I think that's an encouraging thing to say, we have the original Word of God. We just don't know at every single point which one is exactly original. And so I hope that helped me a little bit. Instead of thinking, wow, are there things I'm missing or are there things in there that shouldn't be? And so I think the blessing is we have 110% of the text. We just don't know exactly where uh, it is at every, every uh, minute point. But the second thing I'd say about that is I'd say it sounds to me a little bit like some people have placed the Bible as if it's the Quran. And so it's a huge apologetic thing to, to sit there and really think about that and reflect on it. And, and maybe I just opened too big of a can of worms at the end of a podcast. But, but really, our view as Christians is not the view of, 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 uh, of a Muslim in the Quran. And what I mean by that, simply put, and again, I'd love to unpack it sometime, but simply put is they view the Quran as anything other than this original language, not even a translation, is a translation or commentary. It's not the original. It's not inspired. It's not really the Quran. And so we wouldn't say that. So when you're reading your Bible, your NASB, ESV, NIV, whatever whatever translation you have, you have the inspired word of God. So we don't think that because it's in English, not Greek, because it's not in Hebrew or have, have some Arabic in the Old Testament, that it's not the word of God, it's not inspired. It is the inspired word of God. Because in one sense, it's not the actual Bible we're worshiping, but the spirit behind, right? It's almost like Moses goes to the bush. It wasn't the bush that mattered. It was the spirit behind the bush. And so our scriptures point to Christ. Our scriptures give us the message of God in its entirety, the whole counsel of God that we preach. And so I would view it in a very strong way of saying, I can feel very secure and reliable that what we have was what was originally written down. But I wouldn't tell somebody that as they're reading a translation, you really don't have the inspired word of God because it's a translation, or that's just commentary. It's not really, you just don't know. I wouldn't go there because that's more of a Muslim's understanding of the Quran than a Christian's understanding of the Bible. Yeah, man, beautiful uh, answer. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, if, uh, if, if they want to find out more about you, if they want to get in uh, contact with some of your books, what's the best way other than Amazon for that yeah. to happen? <laughs> well, I mean, in one sense for books, anywhere books are sold, I guess, uh, you know, uh, you know, Christian book distributors, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. And you just released, I will we'll end on this. You just really explain briefly. Cause I love these. Uh, yeah. Explain so, the books that just came out. I did. So <laughs> Part of my thought, maybe sometimes I'm looking for what's never been focused on or what's not been done. No one's ever done a children's picture book series on the minor prophets. And <laughs> to me, that always was like, you know, it's almost even becoming Christian satire that nobody knows this section of our Bible called the minor prophets. Even Babylon B and others are like, man discovers a book of Nahum. He didn't know it was in the Bible, right? So, and, and my thought is besides Jonah, maybe is uh, I really wanted to, to illustrate these uh, accurately, clearly, in an engaging way uh, to be able to just help people experience and know about another portion of their Bible they uh, often don't know. And it, it's really probably broader than just kids. I think even for a lot of you know adults, educators, teachers, that it, it is a difficult uh, section to know if, if, you, if you don't know the overarching story and how it fits in. Is it post-exilic, pre-exilic? Is it this, is that? So there's a lot to the minor prophets, but we wanted to do it in a very simple, easy-to-read format. And uh, this will be my first time in public sharing this. Uh, I haven't oh, done video, video for the books at all yet, but I will tell you, one of the things most readers probably won't know or appreciate behind the scenes happen 
is the illustrator wanted us to give her an inspiration board of all the archaeology of this time period so she could say, what did an idol look like back then? What did the Assyrians wear? What would this sandal have looked like? So we gave her this, all the archaeological evidence we have, so she would be inspired to create a book that was actually visually accurate as well. Um, even like uh, the one book uh, to the um, Obadiah and the Edomites, it's red. Why is it red? Well, Esau. And so you'll learn that everything was really almost picked because it has a reason. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy if there are any readers pick it up for a grandkid, a, a brother, sister who has kids. Well, hey guys, thank you so much for joining us today on the Battlefield Theologian podcast. I hope that was exciting for you. Sorry about the little abrupt ending there, but we had some issues but uh, I hope that this kind of gets you thinking, kind of helps reframe your mind on how the first century church and the di distribution of manuscripts uh, occurred and arose back then. Uh, it's, it's exciting to find out because when we understand our past a little bit better, we can understand what and how we should be worshiping God today. But again, thank you guys for joining us. I uh, have some more future guests coming up. And, uh, if you have any questions or anything that you want to ask me on the podcast time, Shoot me an email, drop me a message, anchor.fm. You can find us on Instagram as well. I look forward to connecting and hearing from you guys, and I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you so much.